Welcome to What Makes Up Your Mind, updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University's School of Medicine. This is your invitation to meet the faculty dedicated to understanding our most complex organ, committed to curing mental illness, and inspired to help create a healthier, thriving world. Welcome. We're so glad you clicked that listen button on what makes up your mind. I'm Jane McMillan. If you're searching for some encouraging news on the addiction crisis, particularly the devastating opioid epidemic fueled by illegal fentanyl, you have landed in just the right spot. Because our guest, Dr. Keith Humphreys, is at the forefront of putting the latest research and medical treatments into action as public policy nationally and in California with a groundbreaking program you're going to hear about in this conversation. Now, certainly there is no diminishing the extent of this emergency. The Centers for Disease Control has reported that opioid overdose deaths skyrocketed among teens during the pandemic. 94 percent between 2019 and 2020, an additional 20 percent between 2020 and 2021, overwhelmingly driven by illegal fentanyl. 2022 was also a record year in the fight against street drugs. Federal agents reported intercepting more deadly doses of fentanyl than there are individuals in the United States. So overwhelming, yes, terrifying, Absolutely. Hopeless? Not at all. There are encouraging changes afoot, thanks in great part to continuing advances in brain research, treatment options, in recent governmental interventions that have opened doors to more treatment access and prevention measures, and to the ceaseless work of experts like our guest, the Esther Ting Memorial Professor in the Stanford Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Welcome, Dr. Keith Humphreys. Really glad to be here. We've heard for years, sadly, about the opioid epidemic in this country. A few years back, it was OxyContin. That might be a, a drug name that people are familiar with. And now, of course, we're hearing about these deadly fentanyl overdoses, another epidemic. Where does fentanyl fall in the array of these opioids? So, yeah, that's a really good question. Fentanyl is... Uh, a synthetic drug. So that means it is not derived from agriculture in any way. It's entirely whipped up in a lab that allows it from a trafficking viewpoint to be uh, cheaply made. You don't need farms in Afghanistan or 10,000 mile supply lines or anything like that. And it's extremely potent. So you can mix up very small batches and deliver them and hide them from police pretty easily. And that's why fentanyl has conquered uh, the illicit opioid market in the United States, supplanting heroin and to some extent diverted pills like, uh, you know, stolen oxycontin and hydrocodone and things like that. It's many, many more times potent than any other opioid we've had out there before, probably about 50 times stronger than heroin. And as a result, uh, we're seeing an unprecedented number of overdoses. Uh, it's a very potent drug, therefore very reinforcing, making it addictive. And very small quantities of it um, have different effects. So you can be off just a little bit with fentanyl and lose your life. You know, the difference between the dose that a person wants to feel euphoria or to fight off withdrawal is very close to the dose that will stop their breathing. 
And it's particularly, this epidemic is particularly hard on young people under the age of 40 and even more so, as I understand it, teenagers and young adults. Yeah, so we've we've seen about a doubling of overdose deaths among teenagers. Most of that in in the last 20 years, and and a big chunk of that, at least with fentanyl, is coming in because they are buying products they don't realize are fentanyl and taking them. So on various online forums, you know, and also you might see these on Instagram or Snapchat or Etsy or things like that, people sell illegally pills. And they say these are, you know, this is diverted Ativan or it's diverted uh, Adderall, or maybe they get it from a friend who says this is, you know, this is my my brother's medication or my mom's medication or whatever, but actually it's an illicit drug and it's been made by a trafficking organization and and there's fentanyl in it. So then the person takes it thinking they're taking an anti-anxiety drug and it turns out to be fentanyl to which they have no tolerance and then they die. And so we've had more cases of that in in the last year than we have at any other point. That's part of the, the profile of what's happening. Then there's a second group of people who have been using opioids for a very long time, sometimes heroin, sometimes OxyContin, and they're a bit older, they're in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And the reason they're dying from fentanyl is that it is able to overcome the tolerance they have to opioids, even though they can take uh, many strong opioids without overdosing, fentanyl is just so much stronger, and they frequently don't know when they're being exposed to it. And therefore, after you know using heroin, say, you know every day for 20 years, they use fentanyl and die. And that's accounting for more of those uh, midlife and late midlife deaths, which we're also seeing at the same time we're seeing an uptick in deaths among young people. How do these opioids work in our brains, in our physiology? What is it that they do that helps with pain, but that also makes them so addictive and deadly at times? You know, in the brain, we have receptors and and, and which molecules can bind to. And one way to think of think of this is not a bad metaphor is like think of a lock and a key you know keys fit into particular locks and they don't fit into other locks that's also true with uh, molecules and receptors in the brain so opioids bind at a particular site the the mu receptor and uh, when when an opioid attaches there so it's basically sort of fits into the the space created by the the uh, receptor uh, it activates multiple brain pathways that do different things Uh, three broadly speaking three different things First is uh, euphoria. It feels good. Most people feel happier or joyful uh, or relief of anxiety um, when they uh, take an opioid. Not everybody, but most people. Second, it um, reduces pain, as, as we know. Um, and that's why opioids are quite useful in, for example, surgery and in uh, managing cancer and uh, managing palliative care. And also, uh, at least for short-term care, uh, they can be valuable for uh, acute injuries. And then the third thing is that they slow a number of biological functions, including digestion, but much more importantly, breathing. So this is a a function control to deepen the brain, medulla oblongata. And uh, as breathing slows, uh, you uh, bring less less oxygen into your body. And the absence of oxygen, uh, if it gets too acute, will cause you to pass out. And if it gets even more acute, it causes you to die. And that is why people die from these drugs. It's from that. Uh, slowing of breathing to the point that the body isn't getting enough oxygen to uh, maintain life. What about work being done, or is there work being done? And if so, where are we in the progress of it that could perhaps be more selective with how these affect our different receptors? Yeah, so this is a very interesting idea. 
and to be clear, it's an idea and it's really complicated to sort out. So I couldn't tell you that it will necessarily work out. But here's the idea. When that uh, opioid receptor binds, there's actually lots of sub sub receptors inside the mu receptor. Mu is kind of a crude uh, uh, description I'm using. But can you build a molecule such that it is an opioid and it does bind there, but it doesn't activate all three of those pathways that I mentioned? So an example would be, let's say it relieves pain, but it doesn't slow breathing. Well, that would be great. Then you would have a pain reliever that you couldn't overdose on. Or it, it relieves pain, but it doesn't create euphoria. Well, that, that would be great. Then you wouldn't have a pain reliever that is addictive. And there's some work done with animals showing some success with this, including work done at Stanford by Shao Kate Chen and Brian Kuboka, but also some other um, some of those some of that work hasn't replicated. So it's it's quite a debate among people who work in neurobiology about whether this is ultimately translatable in humans or not. But if if it were, then that would be you know obviously the best of all worlds. We would no longer have the tough problem we have now of you know we have to have these medications for people in pain. It would be awful to not have them, but having too many of them causes other problems. So if you had a drug that did reduce pain and you couldn't overdose on it and you couldn't get addicted to it, well, that would just be absolutely magical. So it's understandable why people are pursuing it, and we'll see whether or not they are able to achieve that or not. It would be it's, it's quite a scientific challenge. Does that tie into the buzz lately about a possible vaccine? Is that the same technology no, or a, work, or is that something different? No, that's a really different line of work that has been going on for at least 20 years. And uh, I, should, I should clarify, vaccine in this work is not meant in the way we often think of vaccine, like preventive, like you get your tetanus mm-hmm. shot when you're a kid, but therapeutic vaccines. So once people have a condition, then you use the immune response to try to protect them from a, a harm of it. And what the idea is that you, um, you inject people with a vaccine that treats the drug like, uh, like an infectious agent. And so when it enters the body, let's say cocaine or opioids or whatever, the body attacks it and stops it from crossing the blood-brain barrier, and that prevents you from overdosing. And this has been done again in animals and also with cocaine. Some, some studies have been done with humans, but in my view, it's, uh, you know, it's the treatment of the future, and it's been the treatment of the future for at least 20 years. I mean, people have been saying we're going to solve this soon, uh, and we haven't been able to do it. There's a number of challenges with um, the getting the body to have a full immune response, which is which is challenging. It's also challenging to get people to take it. Of course, you can you can get animals to take it because you decide you inject an animal, but a human being has to decide to take it. At least a certain portion of the population doesn't want to take a drug that, that or a medication that um, will you know remove the ability of drug reward from them. Um, so th- there's there's still quite a few challenges there. My, my bet is five years from now, we will still be saying this is the treatment of the future. Um, but I'd be happy to be proved wrong. Yeah, understood. All right. So doctors who use opioids therapeutically, and as you said, thank goodness we have this available because acute pain from cancer or so many other things would not be manageable. How do they walk that line and watch their patients or are there indicators ahead of time uh, that their patients might be susceptible to becoming addicted. It's the the sixty four billion dollar question that you know medicine has been struggling with really since the the mid nineties when there was very aggressive promotion of these drugs by manufacturers and distributors, and we had a four hundred percent per capita increase in prescribing. 
some of that was good. I mean, some of that was for people in pain who needed it, who weren't getting it. And it's important to remember the opioid, to think about opioids as as a crisis, but not just around addiction, but also around pain, because we have a crisis for people in serious pain who aren't being aren't being treated. So those things all, all work together. I've noticed a generational change at Stanford, and I know this is true in other parts of the country, and how our medical students today think about this versus how they thought about it 20 years ago. 20 years ago, there was much more of a stopping opioid phobic, uh, prescribe, prescribe, prescribe. Now I see a huge amount of care and not just when writing the prescription, but also following it up, which is really important. Looking for signs, for example, that is the person actually taking the medication? Are you seeing any signs of addiction? Are, are uh, they having any adverse reactions, uh, You know, including overdose you don't have to be a uh, have a drug problem to overdose. You can overdose because you, I don't know, you had some wine uh, at dinner, or maybe you're taking an anxiety drug as well that interacts with opioids. It's all kinds of reasons why. Um, so I think they're much better at that. Also, doctors are much more likely to co-prescribe naloxone, which is what's called an opioid antagonist that knocks opioid out of receptor in the event of an overdose and restarts breathing. So um, that's becoming more common where, you know, particularly if someone's on a high opioid dose, you would give the naloxone to them or, or even more appropriate to, to someone in their family. So if they you know, were taking it and they passed out suddenly, then the person would have the ability to revive them without having to wait for an ambulance to show up. Is that part of what was kind of driven in, in 2022 with it being such a terrible year for deaths? particularly from fentanyl, that there have been some changes within the government and the Biden administration and Congress pushing through some new rules. Is it becoming easier for doctors to, to do this? Yeah, so there's been a lot of changes in how we take care of addiction in the United States healthcare system, and mostly good ones uh, over the last 15 years, I would say. We had 2008 insurance plans that, that large employers had had to have parity, meaning, you know, you had to cover addiction care and mental health care the same way you covered other things in your insurance plan. Then the Affordable Care Act gave a lot of people insurance, and that insurance was guaranteed to have coverage for those conditions. I worked in for President Obama when that was passed. President Obama's first drug strategy had expanding naloxone out to people uh, beyond the healthcare system. In fact, I wrote that part of the strategy. And so uh, th those types of things have been rolling out across the country. And then Medicaid expansion has certainly made a big difference in, in hard-hit regions of the country, like where I'm from, West Virginia. You know, it's the backbone of, of drug treatment. Those things are, have all been good. And then, yes, as you mentioned, the Biden administration has made it easier to prescribe a drug called buprenorphine, which is a, what's called a partial opioid agonist, also binds at that same receptor, uh, reduces craving and blocks the impact of other uh, opioids, and uh, is a really quite quite useful drug and can be given both in uh, designated clinics, kind of like methadone can, but can also be given in primary care. So it's uh, much more accessible. So that's certainly been useful. And the last few Congresses have been good. They have given uh, more resources, different types of grants to states to improve and strengthen services for addiction. So all that is good. And at the same time, the death numbers are bad. So we have to keep both those things in their mind. We've done a lot of good things. And at the same time, this is a very serious problem that's not going to go away quickly seems we have two issues to face with opioids, legitimate use that can turn into addiction, and then the current crisis with illegal fentanyl, recreational drugs or street drugs. Have you found that there is a difference in attitude in public policy or maybe just public opinion on compassion and treating those two issues as the same medical problem, medical crisis? 
there's been a, a change in, I think, the public about how they view addiction. Um, people are far less punitive about it than they were when I started my career. And, and I think there's different reasons for that. I think if you compare it to crack cocaine, I think people were pretty punitive. I think some of it is about race. Uh, it's not a nice thing to say, but I think that's always in the soup and how people uh, look at social problems. That when sort of the face of crack cocaine was an inner city African-American, I think the public was less sympathetic when the face of opioid addiction became suburban housewives addicted to Oxycontin. So that, I think, racism in, in, inhibited people's compassion in a way it hasn't with, with opioids. Second, there isn't the level of violence associated with opioids as there are with stimulant drugs like, you know, methamphetamine, cocaine, and so on. And that makes them, I think, less scary to people. And they're not, not as frightened of people being aggressive as they are with, say, mass. That may have increased compassion. And then I just think there's some generational changes that are the idea that addiction is a disorder, which, which is not accepted by most people who are older is accepted by most people who are younger. I mean, it's just how, how younger people look at it. It's a given. Just as young people are much more comfortable, for example, going to psychotherapy or saying they have a mental health problem and all that kind of thing. And that cultural change has made it easier to say you have an addiction and easier to go to a doctor and talk about your addiction than it's ever been before, which isn't to say it's easy. It's just easier than it has been. It's still a stigmatized condition, and uh, many people who have it are ashamed of it, as are, as are their families. So that's very common. I always liked the way your colleague Anna Lemke put the call about addiction. She says it needs to be brought into the house of medicine. Mm-hmm. I, love, I love that phrase. And building on what you just said, that attitudes are getting better, but where uh, on the slide scale are we in terms of that really being the norm, how far into the house of medicine is addiction right now? So I think, you know, Anna is right about that. And you think of pediatrics or geriatrics or oncology, we're all basically created by doctors, whereas addiction treatment was created by, you know, had three parents, which was the the criminal justice system, the uh, social welfare system, so things like Salvation Army, and uh, the peer fellowships like Alcoholics Anonymous. And all of them certainly saved, helped people, for sure, some people, but they, they weren't really core, none of them is core to medicine. So the care is less integrated, it's more stigmatized, it's not as well resourced. And my conclusion when I was working for uh, President Obama, as well as the conclusion of other people I was working with in the White House, is that the best way to bring in the House of Medicine is to bring the financing in. So historically, addiction care has been financed by sort of an external grant body and, and you know that that gives uh, money the, the uh, outside of all of the health care it's not much a lot of addiction providers can't do things like bill insurance didn't know, have the technical knowledge and all that and you know we all thought and i still think as long as that's true it's always going to be kind of like the country cousin of, of health care and the good things about Insurance parity regulation and the Affordable Care Act and the Medicaid expansion and all that is is it it brings the mainstream funding mechanisms of American healthcare, Medicare, Medicaid, Blue Cross, Aetna, et cetera, to addiction care. And that will help make it part of the House of Medicine when now you can be working with somebody and oh, we're all working for the same boss, we're under the same rules, we have the same regulations, the same accreditors, we're all paid the same way. That's a huge aid to integrating it. So getting that in place uh, has been a lot of progress, um, but there's still a long way to go. There's still attitudinal barriers. There are people who, including doctors, who do not accept it as a legitimate medical condition or who just don't like the idea of treating addiction. 
they don't like those patients, which is ironic because you can't be a doctor without treating addicted people. They may not say they're addicted, but, you know, they, they'll come in and say they felt they fell down and, you know, they broke their ankle and they need help or they, they had a car accident or they feel depressed or they have a heart condition. And, and behind those stories is an addiction they don't tell you about. And if you don't ask, you'll never know. But nonetheless, some doctors think, I don't, I don't want to treat addiction. I don't, I don't like people who are addicted. That's, that's a barrier, even when you get the financing in, for sure. Well, certainly financing. I mean, that depends a great deal on the purse strings that Congress holds, and that depends a great deal on public opinion. We're talking about knowledge, understanding, and compassion. And there's still a debate about whether every police officer and fire person should have naloxone on them. To me, that would seem like a no-brainer to save a life. Can you grasp that kind of resistance? You know, I've I actually uh, worked on expanding that in a number of states, and it's interesting forms. There's different types of resistance. Some of the resistance is from police who feel, well, I'm not a healthcare worker. That's not my job, or I don't really like uh, addicted people. And then there's also a certain amount of resistance from health people. I mean, there are activists who say all cops are awful. And we don't want them interacting with people who are addicted. You know, police are always bad and they're always pursuing the war on drugs. So we don't want them to carry naloxone either. So it, it's interesting where that comes from. I think those groups should, and to a significant extent, a lot of the country have, put aside those prejudices and tried it out. And I, I worked on uh, with the legislature in West Virginia. We got that bill in, police carry it. They've reversed thousands of overdoses, and uh, by, police have. And, and once you've done that, I think, and you see that it works, I think a lot of those presuppositions tend to fall away. It's really hard to argue with safe lives. And one of the things I said to police is, you know, if you think drugs are an addictive experience, try saving someone's life in a dramatic fashion. Because when you've done that, you'll immediately want to do it again. I mean, it's a real powerful experience. You know, you show up at a house, say maybe a teenage kid is not breathing, the parents are going crazy, and you just come in and minister this drug, and 15 minutes later, they're up and around and doing fine. That's a powerful reinforcing experience of life-saving. And um, the police I know have had that experience. They, they're, you know, then they become the evangelicals for uh, carrying naloxone with their colleagues. Sure, that would be just miraculous to to not only witness it but to enable it or to facilitate yeah, it. Yeah, it is. It is miraculous. Thank God we have naloxone. I mean, it's an old drug, an old generic drug that a lot of people hadn't had kind of forgotten about. I think it had been used some during the heroin crisis in the seventies. But it's obviously come back in a big way and reversed hundreds of thousands of overdoses at this point in the United States. At the same time, it's important to remember it's not a treatment. So it's, the person's just as addicted as they were before if they were addicted, but it is life-saving. So the, the, what, what you have there is an opportunity to get the person into some more enduring care for their drug problem, which you wouldn't have, of course, if they died of an overdose. Yeah, that part of it can be a tougher sell for a lot of folks. Uh, you know, they think it's a matter of willpower rather than a physiological problem or a, a, a physical addiction. If you had your way with public policy right now, if you had full control, what would you do to spur the good changes along? What, what might be a, a magic bullet that could leap us forward? I mean, I think the big cookie is to have universal health care access in the United States uh, with a full panoply of benefits, including addiction and mental health care. That would be the ideal system, which is what other countries with less severe problems have. We still have tens of millions of people who can't go to see to a doctor at all. We have people who have insurance that doesn't cover addiction and mental health. Uh, I think that's really the the biggest thing. And from that, a lot of the good things would flow. I mean, there's like a shortage of workforce. 
and and a shortage of quality treatment. But of course, if every single person had insurance, those things would come about. I mean, there was no such thing as a geriatric medicine fellowship until 1966 because the previous year Medicare was created, and all of a sudden, you know, there were like 30 million customers, uh, and um, that's the way our healthcare system works: is you essentially create customers through insurance, and then the healthcare system starts providing services in order to get that revenue. So I think that would be the fundamental thing: you, you give everyone access to health insurance, you make sure that insurance adequately covers addiction adequately covers other mental health disorders. And then, you know, the system will respond to provide those services and to train the people and that sort of thing. And then there will be jobs and career pathways for people who want to devote their lives to that. That to me is the most fundamental thing. Makes perfect sense. In the meantime, everyone wants to know what what do they do about this situation if they're faced with it and someone they love in themselves? What do we personally do when we see signs of addiction and especially opioid addiction? So it's really tough. And all of us in the field get calls from families in this desperate situation. And it's it's really striking how they're almost always from the family and not for the person themselves. So, you know, the classic situation is the brother, sister, mom, dad sees all the suffering, but the person who's using the drugs does not perceive it as a problem or wants to keep using drugs or does not want to go to treatment. And that's very difficult because it's sort of the nature of the disorder is to continue to do destructive things despite negative consequences. That's what addiction is. And drugs are very reinforcing. It feels good to take drugs. Even when your life is falling apart, it feels good to take them. So there's a strong incentive for them to take them um, and, and to keep taking them that, you know, people outside find maddening and frustrating and hurtful and all those things, which I, I totally get. What I tell people who call me is first off, you can't make the person in your family really do anything. You don't have that power. So if you're trying to do it or beating yourself up because you can't do it, you can stop doing that because that, that's hopeless. I tell them to take care of themselves because frequently their own mental health is decaying rapidly. If they can't even they, they can't get the person to go seek mental health assistance, they can seek mental health assistance. There's also a really big community of family groups and you know, groups like Al-Anon. There's other groups as well. And then the other thing you can do is have rational hope because we do, in fact, have pretty good treatments for opioid use disorder. We have multiple really useful FDA-approved medications. Uh, we have uh, naltrexone, we have methadone, we have buprenorphine, and uh, we also have longer-term formulations where people can take them for a week at a time or a month at a time as an injection. It makes it easier for them to stay on the medication. All that stuff is good. So I say, you know, if you can persuade your loved one to try help, there's actually a lot of help we can offer, which is not something we could have easily said, in, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, so the, those are the main things, you know, but it, it is just a, uh, a real common situation. Field is, you, know, you feel terribly for the family, but the, immediately when you get the call, the first thing you think is, why isn't the person concerned calling? And it's because if, if, if they were calling me, I could do a lot more. In this way, addiction is different than chronic pain. Chronic pain feels awful all the time for the person who has it. And people in chronic pain, they'll, they'll crawl on broken glass for a mile to get a treatment that would relieve their chronic pain. It's so awful. But addiction is different. First off, there's a lot of costs to addiction that fall on other people rather than the person concerned. So, you know, everyone else is running around sort of cleaning up the damage, but the person who's using the drug, you know, isn't enduring those costs, other people are. Um, so that reduces motivation. Second, you know, these are just massively reinforcing molecules. So uh, even if they're aware that there's damage being done to themselves or others, there's still the, the experience of the drug is very, very reinforcing. 
and um, and hard to stop, and they're often very ambivalent about stopping, and that is really different. You never hear people who say, I'm really ambivalent about not being in chronic pain. I'm really ambivalent about not being depressed. Uh, they all would be very happy to get rid of those conditions, but if you brought every person who's addicted to fentanyl into one room and said, if, if you like, I can wave my magic wand and eliminate fentanyl from this earth forever, at least some of them would grab the wand out of my hand and break it in half. And that is really different as a disorder compared to disorders that just impose enormous suffering, consistent suffering, and nothing but suffering on the person who has it. You mentioned the magic wand for access would be universal health care. Of course, we don't have that. So how well situated do you think general practitioners are to be the first point of contact with somebody who comes to them for help? Or where should people go to get perhaps more defined help? So it'd be an unusual general practitioner who would be good at handling addiction, and that's not their fault. There's very little training given in American medical schools to people about addiction, even though it's a condition really. If you're in primary care, you'll see addiction every day, but you may have gotten you know a two-hour lecture on it in your entire medical school experience. So what needs to happen is and is to have it set up like other kinds of conditions where you're backed up by specialists who really know what they're doing. So we don't expect general practitioners to take care of all cancer patients or all heart patients. We expect them to take care of the simple stuff, the preventive stuff, the less serious stuff. And then when it gets tough, they call on a specialist and they work together with that person to give the patient adequate care and then to follow up later in primary care. We need to build that system with addiction so that the person knows, yes, you know, you're going to prescribe buprenorphine, but you could have challenges. But don't worry, you know, you're backed up by an addiction psychiatrist or a methadone clinic or a rehab uh, program, whatever it is. So as with any other condition, you are part of a team and there's people on the team who specialize in this. And the work that's been done, including some work led by Mark McGovern, who's a member of uh, Department of Psychiatry now at Stanford, uh, he did some work up, up in New England where if you do that and you create this kind of hub-and-spoke model, um, huge numbers of general practitioners become comfortable treating addicted patients when they have that same kind of specialist backup that they're used to for other conditions. In terms of where people could go for help for opioid use disorder, I would look, uh, actually for any addiction, I would look on, there's a website, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, and that is the accreditation society, and I would you know, look on there and search for someone with that credential at least you know they'd know a lot of addiction. They would know the relevant medications. Uh, then you get a doctor who's sort of specialized in that. It's also true with a lot of addictions that there is a massive mutual help movement. Anybody can go, and you can go for free. You don't have to fill any forms or things like that. There are groups, but many, many of them. I mean, the most famous one is surely Alcoholics Anonymous. They're different than treatment in that there's no professionals there, and it's a peer-managed system entirely, and it's based on experience, strength, and hope rather than, than medical knowledge. But despite all that, which may make some people think oh, it can't be any good, all the research we've done and other groups have done show that people who go to that fellowship are more likely to resolve their drinking problems than not. There are many, many other types of groups focused on different drugs and approaching them in different ways. You know, when you're on the same journey with other people who are committed to the same goal, can give each other advice, can give support, can make it fun, also hold you accountable and all that, that helps behavior change. Sure. As a patient who goes in for help with, with chronic pain or with situational pain, and it's something that's going to be helped by an opioid, should they be afraid of that? How can they participate in their treatment? Is there anything in particular they should disclose to a doctor who may be thinking about using uh, yeah. opioids? Yeah. 
Yeah, you should. I want to say at Stanford, we're lucky we have terrific pain medicine services here by people who are very aware of the, you know, the potential harms of opioids and are quite careful on how they prescribe them. And it's also important to know that many, many, many people take opioids. It helps them and they don't get in trouble. So worries about certain doom are, are, are really misplaced. They can be taken safely and carefully, particularly for short terms, and be quite helpful to people. But the kinds of things to talk about with a physician are, first off, do you drink alcohol? Do you take benzodiazepines, meaning anti-anxiety drugs? Because both those things can interact with opioids and make them more dangerous. You should disclose if you've ever had any problems yourself with any substances, certainly including opioids whether you've had depression, which is a risk factor for having trouble, and then also talk through how to how to keep it safe. Any suggestions they have about, say, storage, so you don't want any other member of your family, maybe you've got teenagers getting into your pills. Do you need naloxone if it's a high-dose thing? If so, you know, can you have someone else in your family know that you're on these drugs and know how to use naloxone in case you pass out and are unable to take care of yourself? Being careful helps a lot. I mean, I think most of the trouble we had with the prescribing was that people were underestimating risk, both physicians and patients, and because the promotions of these drugs really kind of said there was no risk. If you are going with your eyes open and your doctor has their eyes open and you have a sensible plan and are aware of the harms, you're far less likely to experience them. Because, you know, if used safely, these drugs can be fantastic uh, in terms of helping people with their with their pain and with their function. You've given us an awful lot of hopeful news and information. We appreciate it. It sounds like we're really making some strides. I think we are. You know, um, the Dalai Lama was once accused of being an optimist, and he said, do you have a better alternative? It's true. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) So I've always thought thought that. I mean, I do uh, try to emphasize things are changing for the good because a lot of things are certainly. I mean, prescribing, for example, has gone back to about the level it was before. We had this huge run-up. People are much more careful than they used to be. We know a lot more about pain. We have more medications and more, for that matter, non-pharmacological treatments for pain that are used more, everything from you know, cognitive therapy to physical therapy to yoga, non-invasive stimulation methods. Um, and there's a lot of exciting stuff happening on the addiction side. I'd say personally, the thing I'm the most impressed by is how well some people are doing on these longer-acting versions of medication where you can take a, a injection and have it last for a week or a month because the normative experience is uh, a lot of ambivalence. You know, so I want to quit today, but tomorrow I've changed my mind or even later the same day I've changed my mind. And these kinds of medications allow people effectively to tie their own hands. We say, I want to quit now. I don't know how I'm going to feel in a week. I, I don't fully trust my future self. So this way I can tie my future self's hands for a month, know I will at least get through that far. And and some of the outcome data on those medications is really quite impressive. So that's another reason to be hopeful. And a lot of that, does it come down to much more understanding of the the brain itself research? Yeah, it's definitely true that the neuroscience understanding has been helpful for things like understanding how opioid receptors work and how drugs like buprenorphine work and methadone work. There's also work that's being done on repetitive transmagnetic stimulation of the brain, which is being tried for smoking addiction, for alcohol addiction, methamphetamine addiction. That work is informed very much by neuroscience data on you know different regions of the brain that are implicated in addiction and in the various circuits that maintain it. So there's definitely a certain amount of knowledge exchange between more basic science 
and interventions. And at the same time, I think even the most eminent basic neuroscientists in the world, and we have some of them here, would say the brain is an incredibly complicated organ, and we really are in the earliest stages of understanding it. This is probably, it's certainly a decades-long pursuit and maybe a century-long pursuit before we fully understand all, all the processes involved in uh, the acquisition and maintenance of addiction. You've done so much work on this already. What What is it in particular that you are focused on now or in the near future? So I led a, a project called the Stanford Lancet Commission on the North American Opioid Crisis, which is a partnership with the journal Lancet. It had 18 members on it, half at Stanford, just terrific colleagues. Um, you mentioned uh, Lemke was one. Sean Mackey, who has done so much for pain medicine here, was on it. Margaret Brandau. Jonathan Chen, many, many other colleagues, as well as terrific colleagues from other parts of North America. And we put together a plan for how you would reverse this crisis clinically, uh, in prevention, and in policy. And so what I've been working on since that came out, which was about a year ago, is implementing that. So just as an example, uh, you know, we uh, talked about the need for people uh, in correctional facilities and leaving correctional facilities to have adequate services because very dangerous uh, time when you leave a correctional facility if you've been if you're addicted to opioids you lose your tolerance and while you're inside because it's very hard to get a regular supply of opioids and then you go out and if you use your normal dose you don't have your tolerance anymore and it kills you and so we have this massive death rate as people are leaving so one of the things we suggested is you know extending insurance uh, through that time and, and healthcare through that time and I had the great privilege this last year to work with uh, assembly uh, member Marie Waldron and Assembly Member Jim Wood and the legislature on a bill to make that happen and get a waiver for California to do that. And it was granted. We're going to be the first state in, in history uh, to be able to use Medicaid to pay for those services for people leaving corrections. Congratulations. That, you know, That's you know, huge. Thank you. Thank you. That's very, very satisfying. And I work with certainly Congress. We have a network of policymakers who work on these things and mayors and so on on, on the various you know policies. We've had some are big, some are small. Um, but um, there's lots of opportunities to apply science, kind of science for you at Stanford, and it's done at other institutions to practical policy problems around opioids. So that that is most of what I do these days. I probably talk almost as much to elected officials these days as I do to scientists, um, because there's you know so much death and destruction. People are so desperate for help, and and of course I want to I want to be of help to them. Dr. Keith Humphreys. The Esther Ting Memorial Professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. Learn more about his work, including the groundbreaking policy he helped initiate in California, by visiting our podcast program notes. That's where we'll also have related links mentioned in the program to services and support and more research from Dr. Humphreys. While the situation is indeed dire, What you've heard in this conversation was meant to give you, above all, hope, knowing that there are dedicated champions taking on this opioid fight and winning. Please do come back for more of What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. You've been listening to What Makes Up Your Mind. Updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the experts in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. For more information on this program and all of our transformational work, 
visit us at med.stanford.edu slash psychiatry. What Makes Up Your Mind, Updates from the Frontiers of Neuroscience, Well-Being, and Mental Health, is a production of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine, a copyright of the Board of Trustees of Stanford University. 